This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. I'm Andrew. Still here. And Andrew's still here. We're still hanging out. We're making podcasts together still. How's that baby's, feel? Baby's due date is today. Was yes. today. Was today. Probably not going to happen today. Man, what if it happened live while we recorded? Oh, my God. <laughs> you would turn to dust. The due, It is something <laughs> like 5% of babies are born on their actual due date. The due date is a is a target that most yes. babies do not hit. No. First babies are notoriously late. more yeah. likely to be late than early because, Correct. because when you're having subsequent kids, everything in there is all stretched out and it's just easy. It's just a little more elastic and flexible. Yeah. So we plan so for this. Still, so just waiting, just yeah. waiting around and we appreciate Susanna if she's in labor and being asked by my completely non-chill family and friends if she is in labor. It's true. You're doing like a good I'm job. I'm going to go have this baby in secret and not tell anybody. We appreciate everyone who has sent Andrew, well wishes. There's a bunch of them in our email inbox. It's very sweet. Um, we we did plan for this possibility. So I read uh, The Heart of Darkness, or Heart of Darkness, rather, by Joseph Conrad, um, so that I knew I would have time to get it done before we got in here. Um, and we're going to talk about that this week. And that's it. We're not going to talk about anything else, Andrew. We don't have to talk about anything else. We sure don't, my friend. <laughs> have you read this? You read this, right? I did. I read it in college, and okay. my understanding is that you were supposed to have read it in high school, and you didn't. That classic Craig move. Yeah, I remember writing an essay that had to do with this book, and I <laughs> How had did a pretty you swing that one. I don't know. I I had a pretty clear image of the page on which. Uh, Kurt says the horror, the horror, the famous one. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know, like really don't remember much about anything else. So even if I did read it, which is less than a 5% chance, um, I certainly didn't retain very much of it. So here we are to talk about it for you, the listener, um, and to take you down, down the memory river here, Andrew, just a slow, pleasant drift down the river, nothing to worry about. No colonialism or or interpersonal issues <laughs> to None deal at with. All. <laughs> uh, Joseph Conrad, what do you know about this guy, this cat? Um, I hope that you will help me fill in the blanks. Um, I do know some things uh, that I learned for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that he was born Joseph Theodore Conrad Korzynowski. Mm-hmm. I might be mispronouncing his last name, but he was born in 1857 in Ukraine, which was... Uh, either then or shortly thereafter, part of the Russian Empire, even so though it, it was po- it was Poland it or was, he is of it Polish was descent. Then part of the Russian Empire, but historically Poland. Sure, 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 sure. And there were some pockets of it that were 
allowed a little bit more self-government than others. And that's where his family tried to live. Like his dad in particular was uh, big into Polish independence and just trying to try to get back away yeah, from his, the Russian Empire. <laughs> his parents, Apollo and Yua, his mom died when he was like seven. His dad died when he was 11 or 12. Yeah, both his parents died of tuberculosis. Which, neat, neat. Yeah. Very 19th century of it them. It just seems like he was not a super healthy kid and it no. just seems like it was hard to be healthy in the olden days. Yeah, right? Like you could you could live still. Like not everybody died of stuff, <laughs> but it just seems like it was really tough to to be healthy cuz we didn't know what germs were. We didn't know what like pollution was. Yeah. We hadn't figured true. any of that stuff out yet. But we had figured out how to like harvest the earth for all of its precious minerals. So Yeah. Get those just shiny good rocks out of the earth. Yeah, it's true. Um, he was sent away by his uncle to school and then to become like a sailor slash businessman. Yeah, his uh, um his parents' involvement in Polish independence kind of echoed through his life a little bit because they were technically political exiles. Yeah. And both because of that and because he didn't want to participate in compulsory military service, mm-hmm. um, I think he and his uncle were both kind of just shopping around for like different citizenships <laughs> that he could get because yeah. he didn't want to be a Russian subject anymore. So after you know carefully considering from among several different countries... He um, was granted British nationality in 1886, and Russia was finally like, yeah, fine, you can have him in 1889. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take some time. And uh, between, yeah, between 74 and uh, 94. 1894, he, yeah. Yeah, he was working on French and British merchant ships, um, you know, starting at the bottom of the ranks, and he rose up to eventually become a captain. Um, a lot of his literary work and a lot of his characters are either explicitly or like thought to be drawn from his experiences and from people he met while working these jobs, which feels right to me. I don't think you could be involved in boats for two decades and not meet some pretty colorful characters. I also feel like it'd be kind of weird if you were in the boats for two decades and then you got back and just wrote a bunch of like novels about living in a house. Like <laughs> It's not what you know. You know boats. <laughs> no. Right, well, you know. He did spend um, three years working for a Belgian trade company, which included a stint on the Congo River, which is pretty much what people draw, like look to when they are looking for where Heart of Darkness came from. Um, at the time, uh, the, that area of the continent of Africa was quote-unquote owned by the Belgian king Leopold II. Um, and I guy. did. Yeah, that guy. Friend of the show, Leo Leo II. (laughs) I did see some stuff about how um, Conrad wrote in English, but he, when he set a lot of his, like, oh, I'm on a boat in this, like, uh, non-Anglo-European land, um, he set them in places that were not, uh, that did not have British involvement, mostly so that he would not end up critiquing his new homeland directly, even as he might set out to critique imperialism or colonialism. Sure. Um, and then he started writing like pretty much after, as soon as he got back, right, Andrew? Yeah, because it, w- it was both that he was 36, which in those days, man, old. Woof. Just oh, really boy. old. Um, so was, he was getting a little older, and he couldn't find any good boats to be on. And so he decided to start writing. And he had been interested in literature from 
an early age, like when he was being homeschooled, um, he was exposed to both Shakespeare and to Polish romantic poetry. And something that is said of him is that he brought a sort of a non-native speaker's understanding of English to literature, like English literature, and mm. kind of came at things from a different angle than than other people were coming at them from. Now, what that means exactly, I can't tell you. But yeah. I can tell you that he is known <laughs> for bringing a non-native English speaker's <laughs> understanding of English sure to literature something to put in the back of folks brain as they as they listen to this or you know go off and read heart of darkness or whatever is also the like the scholarship on conrad likes to make a lot of connections between the fate of the polish people and poland um and connect that to the experience of folks in africa enduring like colonialism people also um, love to argue about who the characters in his books are based off love of when it's not to, when yes. it's not 100 percent clear sometimes they're just named the same thing just straight up but the character of kurtz in heart of darkness it's like it's hotly debated who it is and i don't know if you're writing a book would you want would you make sure everybody knew who it was would you leave behind some kind of record so that there was no doubt or would you want people to argue and just kind of be kind of keep their head on a swivel? Because what if it's them? You know, I like the latter. I, I specifically for that last part, I like the latter idea. I because, want people to fear yeah. that my book is about them. Because if it is about them and they read it, then they know what they did. Yes, they can see themselves. But reflected. I don't want it to be so clear that. People are like, oh, well, he just aired all my dirty laundry. And now everyone is like, right. You got to protect yourself from libel. I want literally everyone to fear that it's about them. That's my goal. That's why Mm -hmm. my book is so long. Mm -hmm. Because it's about everybody. You got a little bit of everyone in there. Um, So, yeah, he wrote a bunch of stuff. This was kind of in his early period in the 1890s when a lot of his work was getting published in like lit magazines and yeah. various reviews and things. And he, he didn't use the pen name Joseph Conrad until 1895 when his first book, uh, All Mayor's Folly, came out. Sure. Um, like that book and then the second one called An Outcast of the Islands kind of set him up as a kind of a kind of a voyage adventured book author, kind of typecast him a little bit in a way that he fought back against later sure, in his career. Sure. But uh that's pretty much what I know about him. And then after that, he wrote a bunch of books at the end. Yeah, his big like breakthrough book was a book called Chance in 1913, which also stars Marlowe, which I didn't know that Marlowe was in multiple books. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's the narrator of this, of Heart of Are Darkness. Are sure it's also. the same Marlowe or yes. is just a different guy named Marlowe? There's a dude named Charles Marlowe who is in multiple books. And does he talk about the events of previous no. books like man that guy kurtz it doesn't sound wow, like the horror let me explain to you what exactly <laughs> i think he meant by that it doesn't sound like that but it also doesn't sound like marlo uh that that uh conrad is like these are different people i just love this name i can't get enough of it it's kind of a kevin smith sort of yeah sure <laughs> loose continuity um he did marry he had two sons um they ended up back in Poland briefly when World War One. They were like vacationing in Poland, and then World War One broke out, and they had to get home. Sounds, what a bummer! You know, yeah, what a huge bummer. Um, it ruins your vacation. Yes, and then he died in 1924. Um, this book was published in 1899, um, and then like collected 
and published actually in a book book in 1902 in a collection called Youth, A Narrative and Two Other Stories. This was <laughs> this was one of the other stories. Um, and then uh, this was published in the thousandth issue of the Blackwood magazine in 1899. Um, so what do you... 1899 and it had a thousand issues. That's wild. It's probably coming how often out did like they... every week, dude. Okay. How, how often did they publish? I have no idea. I would think it's like, if it's anything like TV, it's probably like every week. It's probably being read by like a hundred people. It would be, you would assume it would be exactly like TV. So yeah, Exactly like TV. I mean, they didn't have TV. They had the Blackwood magazine. That's what it was. Um, so what do you remember about this story, Andrew? Paint me a very broad picture of like what boats, you recall. <laughs> boats, <laughs> sure. river, trying to find this guy. And I don't remember if they find the heart of darkness or if that's like <laughs> saved for a separate, like a sequel or something. Yeah. Uh-huh. But like not a lot because it has been... 12 years 13 sure. years it's been it a is, lot of years it is a very short book it is a novella that's actually the book i think that i encountered the word novella with was heart when we when i was supposed to have read heart of darkness in school um so it opens with this like an omniscient narrator talking about a bunch of people on a boat in the thames in london and there's a lot of language about how we're on this great river and how many cool British people have been on this river and how it is held, quote, the dreams of men, the seed of commonwealths, the germs of empires. Just to, like, let you know what the world is thinking about. This is the river. This is and the rivers river. are the main way to transport things. Including because culture. Because it was easier to invent boats than it was to invent, like, trains and stuff. Yeah, it was definitely. I mean, tra- there's, some, there's, like, allusions to trains in this book, but it's mostly boats. Um, and this dude, Charles Marlowe, is on this boat, the Nelly, with a bunch of other people. And the bulk of the book is uh, a recounting of what Marlowe told these people on this boat. From whose perspective, do you know? Well, so so like it is important, I think, when we get to like a little bit of the uh, later scholarship on this book. So like there is an omniscient narrator who crops up a little bit, but not that often. Um, But most of the book is like first person in a quotation, like every paragraph starts with a quotation mark from Marlowe as if he is telling it to the other men on this boat in England. Okay. Um, and so you get like this little snippet where it's describing Marlowe before he starts talking. Um, the yarns of semen have a direct simplicity, the whole meaning of which lies within the shell of a cracked nut. But Marlowe was not typical. And to him, the meaning of an episode was not inside like a kernel, but outside, enveloping the tale which brought it out only as a glow brings out a haze in the likeness of one of these misty halos that sometimes are made visible by the spectral illumination of moonshine. Also, I just wanted to give you a a snippet of what Conrad is up to here language-wise. Everybody just drinking moonshine and telling tales. Yes, sure. Um... So Marlowe is a little bit different from the other. It's not just like, oh, I was on this boat and there was this storm. He's here to tell you like a tale that means something. Well, and what and and presumably what he went through on the specific boat 
separates him from his comrades Correct. in some way. Yes, that's true. It's so had he, an, an outsized effect on him. So he decides to tell a story about how he went on, uh, he was the captain of a steamboat for an ivory trading company in Africa. Uh, again, the story does not name the Congo River, but people have put two and two together from Conrad's own life experience. Well, and again, like how many rivers are <laughs> Yes. That's... How many rivers are like main arteries for the ivory trade? There are only so many <laughs> candidates. Correct. Um, and he gives us a little bit where he's like, as a kid, he's fascinated by maps and he just loves maps and he loves the part of maps where you don't know what's there. And this, I think, is a particular psychology. This was a great moment for me to read in terms of like, oh, that is a, a way that people used to look at the world. I like, guess it just sounds like you're describing a bad map. Well, but it's <laughs> if like, it's a map word that's not telling you where stuff is, then it just sounds like you did a bad map. No, it's like a map of like, oh, we know there's a river there, but we don't know like who lives there. We don't know what resources are there. No, you know, from a from a European perspective, there's quote unquote nothing there, right? Um, and that's incorrect, but that is like the psychology of this boy who's like, yo, well, let's go to the parts of the map where no one's been. Sure. Um, so that stirs him on to, as he gets older and needs a job, um, with the help of some of the women in his life, his aunt, and etc., he kind of gets through the bureaucracy to get assigned to this steamboat. And so um, he gets... Uh, he gets put on like two different boats that take him down to Africa. And finally he's like on the coast, he's at a camp and he's making his way to the interior and he's supposed to get further in, hop on a steamboat and then presumably, I guess, travel up river. And later on he realizes that they want him to meet this guy Kurtz, but he doesn't quite know that at the top. Um, and right away, Andrew, we are confronted with one of the things I think that is central to how people feel about this book now or What's have that? felt about this book is its portrayal of native Africans. Oh, it's um, probably super bad, huh? It's bad, but it's it's of a time. Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know. Yes. I, I know what you mean. Like it, we we look at that now, and it's like, wow, that is pretty racist. But but was it for its time like aware of the racism, or is the, it just presenting the stereotypes as people would have understood them at the time, or what? What specific like it's a product of its time explanation are we looking at here? Yeah. So the, <laughs> it's it's um I think one of the things about this book that has made it endure is there's a lot of ambiguity in the character motivations and things like that. So th the ability to argue about this book in kind of how it's a little poetic at times, I think has led people on both sides of like, yo, this is a racist text. Why would we teach it and learn from it? Um, and other people saying it is critiquing colonialism and it's all from Marlowe's perspective, and he's part of the system, so, like, also he's bad, too, and Conrad knew that. Like, let's think about it that way. Okay. Um, so let me give you a, just a passage from early on. We are Please. at a camp in Africa. There are people building a railroad, and it is, like, literally destroying the black men who are 
presumably forced to work on it, though I don't think that these guys are referred to as enslaved or anything like that. It's probably um, one of those things where even if maybe they f- they feel like they had some choice in the matter, they probably didn't. Like either because of yes. economical forces that the British Empire has pushed down there, or because of you know. Remember, these are Belgians, force. Andrew. Yeah. We're not insulting English people. Sorry, sorry, it's the Belgians. Belgians. Yeah, but of whatever. course, the Belgians. Yes. Everybody, the sun never sets on the Belgian Empire. <laughs> That's a famous <laughs> phrase. Um, so uh, Marlowe sees this boat. Um, and here's the direct quote. It was paddled by black fellows. You could see from afar the white of their eyeballs glistening. They shouted, sang, their bodies streamed with perspiration. They had faces like grotesque masks. These chaps, but they had bone, muscle, a wild vitality, an intense energy of movement that was as natural and true as the surf along their coast. They wanted no excuse for being there. They were a great comfort to look at. A lot of the description and any language that is devoted to black characters at all in this book is very keyed in on their physicality and okay. like their individual parts rather than their total personhood. Um, and personhood, which they may or may not have been assumed to have had. Well, yeah, we get to that a little bit later too. But yeah. even the the most like oh. Some of, you know, I I feel a kinship to these men who also know this jungle kind of thing from Marlowe. He is still reducing them to individual parts, um, even as he, like, likes them or or whatever, right? Sure. Or, or recognizes that they are, you know, in a later scene, we see a bunch of men that have been just, like, torn apart by working on this railway system. And he's commenting on how they're all dying and how this whole operation is just killing them. And he recognizes that he's a part he's a part of it, and I guess that's that's the best we're gonna get, right? Sure. Um, he but what also, can I, one person, do about the system? Yeah, problem? there's <laughs> there's some of that going on. Um, so he does bemoan how natives are treated, um, but the language he uses is really kind of galling to a modern eye. Sure. Um, sure. 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 Use of legit slurs. Use of the overuse of the word like savage in a way that's just taken for granted all that kind of stuff um so that's just to like lay the groundwork for where this this whole relationship is so he's going into the jungle he gets to this outer station where they first tell him about mr kurtz and they're like yo kurtz is really good at getting ivory and he runs a trading post up the river and he's just so good at it and we all think that he's gonna do great stuff um and Marlowe begins to like judge some of the men at these camp who are clearly here just for kind of capitalist reasons and don't have some sort of higher calling, which, right? <laughs> That's kind of wild. Yeah. Um, people don't always, people don't do stuff because they feel called to it by God, I think, most of the time. Well, under hmm. capitalism. Uh, He says, the conquest of the earth, which mostly means the taking it away from those who have a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves, is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. What redeems it is the idea only, an idea at the back of it, not a sentimental pretense, but an idea, and an unselfish belief in the idea, something you can set up and bow down before and offer a sacrifice to. And then he kind of goes on that, like, maybe there's a a nobler reason for, for being 
in this part of the world. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Hmm. Maybe not. Maybe not. But Uh, maybe. Yeah. So Marlo sets off with a bunch of guys. Um, some of the he refers to any of the white colonists that are with him as pilgrims, and then he will just talk about either natives or when he is on his boat. Uh, some of them are legit cannibals that are with him. He talks the about word, their... the use of pilgrim is interesting because that does yes. have kind of a religious connotation. Yeah, and it, it honestly feels a little ironic because I can tell that Conrad is critiquing some of these people and their and the way that they see the world. So it doesn't feel like I don't know. I feel like Marlowe is it's almost sarcastic. It's maybe not quite, but it, it is not just to be taken at face value. Sure. Um when he gets to where his boat is supposed to be, it's totally wrecked. Uh, because they heard that Kurtz was ill. They tried to go up the river without their captain, and they hurt the boat, and Marlo gets <laughs> they, super oh pissed. No. They hurt the boat. <laughs> he gets really mad. Um, there's a couple paragraphs where he waxes poetic about his boat using a, a feminine pronoun, um, well, which is typical. just not a thing I've ever, like, I know that, like, that's You've not just watched enough old. Star Trek, my friend. Do they you, do they do that on Star Trek? Do they refer to the Enterprise as a she? Uh, more in the, More in the original series oh than sure any of that's the other a very ones. kirk thing to do I it's suppose. yeah like it's a it's more it's a it, they make the subtext text in that futurama episode where they get all the original series people to oh, come yeah, and do that yeah. thing where he's reading that fake fan script and one of the lines <laughs> is my ship which i love like a woman is disabled <laughs> but it's definitely there in subtext okay yeah. sure um so it takes months to fix this to fix this boat which allows Marlo time to sit at this camp, um, watch like something catch fire, and then one of the natives working at the camp gets beaten for it, and Marlo has feelings about it. Um, he meets a dude who's supposed to be a bricklayer, but there are no bricks, so he just sits there and gets paid to sit there, I guess, um, who pumps him for info about uh, Kurtz and like thinks that Marlowe is like sent by higher ups in Europe that could maybe like help this dude out or something. He refer he Marlowe hates this dude because he's so sniveling and self important. He calls him a a paper mache Mistopheles. <laughs> okay, sure, fine. And in the middle of this dude's speech about himself, I was actually, I got distracted and forgot that there was an omniscient narrator because the book had gone so long with just Marlowe talking that while he's bored of this dude that's in his story, he gets distracted and trails off. Mm-hmm. And the narrator, the the like non-Marlowe omniscient narrator is like, oh, and then he trailed off and sat there quietly for a few moments. And I literally forgot how the book worked. <laughs> I was so confused. That's what I find. I always find it because we have read and it's mostly I think the last book I read that did this sort of thing a little bit was um, the time machine, though. It did. Yeah, revisit, that era. yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. did revisit the the frame narrative a couple of, of times throughout. But I'm always curious about the the drive to do it that way rather than to just straight up tell the story, even though I think it would still work. Um, I'm sure there's a ton. This is one of those things where we're talking about a question and I'm sure there's an answer, but we don't know it because we're dumb idiots. But it's fun to just guess. Yeah. I want to say we <laughs> talked about it a little bit years ago when we were talking about Crusoe 
and just in general the or it's even like it's in Frankenstein it's in Dracula it's like I guess oh I witnessed a real thing yeah like, like it, it's a it's a way to imply to the audience oh this isn't a fantastical thing this is me in recognizably modern Britain usually Britain because that's the yep. era yep telling in you English of lit, this fan- anyway, yeah. yeah telling you of this fantastical thing that happened while we smoke our cigars and drink our whiskeys sure correct okay i yeah. buy that sure sometimes the book is just letters to people too sometimes book is just letters that form a string of words that form paragraphs oh, that, that yeah. to take together too. form a story uh, Marlo is still waiting for his boat to be repaired. He waits a long time for enough rivets. He gets very upset that there are not enough rivets. They have you can the, never have too many rivets. They they this have. Sound, this, hey hey Craig Craig Craig. What? This sounds riveting. Oh my god. <laughs> got you again. <laughs> I like the idea that by telling a joke you've gotten me. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> they um. While he's waiting, he is talking to the the uncle of the annoying bricklayer and learning that some of the higher-ups don't actually like Kurt so much. He's a bit of a rogue. He does things his own way. He has clearly been That's like... a tricky class. Yeah, it's a tough thing to play. He's got that backstab, you know, what do you kind of like focus in? Is it poison or is it right? Like, like you kind of, you, you do need other party members to like tank and to heal and stuff. You're yes. like, you're an interesting utility player. It's really as a tough. Rogue. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, he has clearly been taking advantage of the system and kind of amassing an individualistic power of sorts by negotiating his own alliances with various local tribes and like setting them off on one another and getting this massive store of ivory kind of for himself um so they're not the 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 capital c company is perhaps getting a little bit worried about being able to control kurtz and whether or not his stuff is like hurting their own long-term interests Right. Yeah. And so you wanted to talk a little bit about adaptations and we probably don't need to like go all the way into that. But the most um, the best known, I guess, adaptation of this work is Apocalypse Now, which was the Francis Ford Coppola movie um, that that took the setting from, you know, like trade and empire and the old times to like the military and Vietnam. Yeah. yeah, But it was still Kurtz becomes a a guy who has gone rogue a little bit and is being like recalled or removed from duty. And yep. Even though I don't, the names are changed in the, in, in the movie, but um, it's Brando going just full Brando. As I recall, Yeah, I think Kurtz is still Kurtz, but Marlo becomes something, something else. I think Martin or something. American uh, Martin Sheen plays captain Benjamin L. Willard. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's not the same. <laughs> But yeah, basically, point being that that key to the story is this person sent by civilization, whatever that means, yes, to remove somebody who has, I guess, like fallen away from civilization out here in the wild, whatever yep. you want that to mean. Yep. And <laughs> yeah, and where civilization is assumed to be, you know, Europe or or America or the West or whatever it is that you want it to mean. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things that has made this book endure as 
because it's so slim, it actually doesn't flesh out what I what all of that might mean. So you kind of just get this, hey, there's a guy out in the jungle and he's doing bad stuff. And it means something about humanity. Uh, so we got to <laughs> go get him. And by the end, it goes bad or we learn that humanity's bad. And then we can kind of fill in blanks based on our own priors. So I, I think that's part of why this book has like in again it's endured but also like a been able to glom on to different types of stories and things sure. like that okay um so we're going up the river we finally get the boat working as i said we spend some time talking about like how there are cannibals on the boat how the cannibals brought some rotten hippo meat so that they wouldn't be tempted to eat the other people on the boat it's really rough going there for Wait, a few the rotten days. hippo meat is supposed to keep them from eating the fresh human meat. Yes, hmm. they don't seem totally satisfied by it, but they've brought I it mean, with because it doesn't sound very good. It's probably yes. why. Yes, um, and we wake up one morning. We're like eight to ten miles from Kurtz. The boat is surrounded by white fog. They hear a bunch of noise in the jungle. We've gotten a lot of passages from Marlowe describing the jungle as this like a, almost a sentient being a thing that can that if it wanted to could come forward and just consume them um but it doesn't and that that is terrifying in and of itself um so that mystery is always ever present the steamboat does get attacked uh, a bunch of like a hail of arrows is shooting the boat this helmsman uh, gets stabbed with a spear and dies at Marlo's feet and all the blood gets in his shoes and Marlo freaks out. It's really gross. Sure. Um, they do scare off the attackers by blowing the steam whistle. Uh, and in this moment, Marlo decides to tell us about a thing he gets from Kurtz later in the story, which is a report Kurtz wrote for a fictional society that Conrad made up called the International Society for the Suppression of Savage Customs. Which he waxes poetic, apparently, Kurtz does, about, like, the most altruistic version of conquering other peoples. Um, and says that whites, quote, must necessarily appear to them in the nature of supernatural beings We approach them with the might of a deity. You might think that Kurtz has some issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he hand he handwrites a postscript on it that just says, kill the brutes. And in my, in my notes, I made a note that says, who are the brutes, Andrew, is a good question. Ooh. Um, and so we survive that attack. We finally get to Kurtz's camp. Uh, we meet this Russian wanderer man who's wearing patchwork clothes, who is in love with Kurtz and thinks that Kurtz is the coolest thing, but also he's dying. And Kurtz is dying or Kurtz the is Russian... Dying. Yeah. poet bard guy is dying the russian guy uh he marlo describes him as looking like harlequin or arlequino he's like wearing patchwork clothes um he has nursed kurtz back to health a couple of times and kurtz has this like he has a, a like capital letter leader of men cult leader quality to him that we hear of from the russian guy sure that's very non-specific. It makes you want to accomplish great things and like you could change the world. But he never really says like what it is that Kurtz tells him. It's just he fills his head with ideas about 
love and what mankind's supposed to do and things like that. It's very demagogy, um, but told from someone in the cult. Sure. So Marlowe is like, mm, I don't, I don't know. This guy seems like important and powerful, but maybe he's crazy, and maybe we <laughs> need to worry about him. Um, and they get to the station where Kurtz is supposed to be. There's a bunch of pikes like jammed into the ground that have human heads on them. Um, it's kind of spooky. And then <laughs> they 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 find Kurtz. He's definitely dying. And the pilgrims go to like put him on a stretcher and bring him back to the boat. And a bunch of natives run out of the jungle almost to attack. Kurtz waves them off. Um, they put Kurtz on the boat and the Russian guy runs away into the jungle. Uh, they... Then we just get like a few scenes of Kurtz and Marlowe hanging out. They don't talk too much. It's just very clear that Kurtz is like definitely on his last legs. He's probably not going to make it back. The manager who's on the boat really doesn't like what Kurtz is up to and what he's like gone and done living with the natives and clearly like tried to control them himself or something. Okay. There's another attack of the natives which implies something or it belies something that the Russian says is that they don't want him to leave. We don't know why. We don't know what he's doing for them. He or sounds why. like a great cool guy who you'd want to have around at parties and stuff. Yeah, but he definitely did kill some of them and put their heads on spikes around his house. Maybe only the bad ones, though. Maybe. Maybe only the jerks. Maybe. It's possible. But they that do worship like the him. Most, Occam's razor, man. He used yeah, Occam's right. razor to cut them heads off. He, he did indeed. Um, they do uh, like attack the boat one more time to attempt to keep him there, but they scare them away. There's this really poetic kind of modernist impressionist moment where there's like a single native woman in the crowd of men who like stands there with her arms outstretched as if she wants Kurtz to come get her. Um I, I'm not sure what any of that means. It just stood out to me as like, wow, I don't remember that from the time I fake read this book. Um, <laughs> and, and it gets to a little bit, I think, of some of the impressionistic imagery of this book that might come from a Polish writer learning English and infusing it with his own sense of poetry, perhaps. Um, the boat is broken one one last time. While they wait for repairs, Kurtz gives Marlowe a bunch of papers. Marlowe tries to talk to him. Kurtz says, yo, I'm going to die. And then he kind of gets scared of the fact that he's dying. He says, the horror, the horror. And he dies. So can you tell me what the horror means? And I, I don't want to guess. I just want you to tell me the one thing that everyone knows that it means. Okay, I will definitely give you the exact thing that it means because everyone I've knows that it, it means one unambiguous thing. Yes, that the he left the clues there in the text. Conrad did, and that if you can't figure it out, you're just too dumb to be reading this book. So, what is the sure. one thing? Because I know I trust you. Great, I know thank you're you. on the ball. I'm glad that you trust me. Mm -hmm. Marlowe kind of talks about it. And he talks a lot about Kurtz's unrelenting uh, and insatiable kind of greed and appetite. Uh, that he got into this jungle and he just couldn't stop taking and taking and controlling and conquering and consuming. Because uh, well, who's there to stop him? Because who's there to stop him? And he is... 
If he's no, got, like, I mean, if he's got like superior technology or, or, or whatever it is. Sure, yeah. sure, 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 sure. And he is not there necessarily to like, quote unquote, lift up the people that live there. He is there to use them for his own means. And Marlo is having some feelings about whether or not that is any, you know, whether or not European white men are any different from what they call savages in the jungle um, because we're all just people who could just like have this insatiable appetite that ruins our lives. Yeah. Um, so in the moment that Kurtz is dying, he is like watching his life, you know, at four times speed in his brain and realizing that that has what has brought him to his end. And that is the horror. I suppose the horror is the rapacious human nature that consumes all it sees. Uh, and that that is the heart, that is the darkness at the heart of all mankind, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Um, and that our desire for progress, our desire to tame the world and remake it in a way that is more suitable to us will actually just lead to the erosion of our humanity mm-hmm. um, because we will just seek to eat and eat and take and take. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? I'm just checking Google real quick to make sure you're right. Okay. I think you are pretty, you got it pretty much. What is, what does Google say? Literarydevices.net says the use of this phrase is not common in everyday life. (laughs) However, you may find it in literary texts and movies. You would notice whenever this line appears, it conveys the meanings of threat, evil deeds, fear of evil, evil actions, or pointing out an alarming situation, such as if someone or something catches fire, foreign invaders come, or a war breaks out. It's not so quite you, you what's write, happening here. You writers here. at home, just just know that those are that's you, you wouldn't hear this in everyday life, but you can use it if something bad happens, or like break the rules and like have someone say the horror, the horror when they're at a grocery store. No one would expect it. Honestly, though, like you're looking at all different like kinds of Pringles and Oreos and stuff, and I the horror. You know, we just we just take and take and consume and consume and this is where it gets us. sometimes i get to the register i see the taxes i have to pay and i just go the horror the horror oh yeah sure sure sure, sure. yeah uncle sam taking his bite yeah man mm. um so marlo <laughs> uh kurtz dies a bunch of people on the boat bury him even though Marlowe's like very unceremonious about that stuff i always feel like the the story ends with the horror of the horror. It I think doesn't. the movie the movie does, but I don't think the book does, right? Yeah, so check out this stuff. Okay. Um, Marlo... <laughs> Stop yelling at me first. <laughs> Marlo has Kurtz's papers. He has a photograph of a, of a woman that Kurtz... Uh, it's referred to in the text as his capital I intended. It's his fiance back home in England. Um, and so Marlo goes back home. He doesn't like society anymore because all mankind is bad now. He just can't Same. handle it. But yep. uh, people come and take some of Marlowe's papers. They they take the report um, or take Kurtz's papers. Marlowe's protecting the private letters and stuff. He finally sits down with Kurtz's grieving fiance who is like, oh, my God, you knew him so well. You were there with him when he died. You must have known that he was a genius, just like I knew he was a genius. Oh, my God, I love him so much. Please, you were there. Tell me what he said. What was the last thing that he said when he died? You got to tell me so that I can properly grieve or end my grief. And Marlo kind of looks at this lady 
and sees how sad she is and says, the last thing that he said was your name. And she's like, oh, my God, I knew it. I knew that's what he would say when he died. And and Marlo has to sit with that lie because he couldn't bear to tell her the truth about what had happened to her man or about humanity. That's the end. Would, okay. Would you would you have told the lie? <sighs> put yourself in the put yourself in the shoes. We don't often of do this. We don't yeah. often say like put on the protagonist's shoes and what yeah, would you like, do? Would you would you have thrown the ring into the volcano? Well, I definitely would have done that. I mm-hmm. um I don't know because if I had been through what Marlo had been through, I might have been like, yo, you, it might have been hard to stop me from just saying the horror, the horror at everyone. Like, it, it was, <laughs> you know, it was bad down there. I definitely um, would have lied. I would have told the lie a hundred yes. times over over and over again. I just would have lied because that's other, because to tell the truth creates an awkward situation that I then have to live in. <laughs> and to just tell the lie, like, she can she can feel a little bit better. Sure, and that's I fair. can just I can continue to internalize this thing. Okay, just yeah, really I think, chew on it. I just think if I were if if I were in Marlowe's shoes, I can't shake what that the dude had bled on my shoes, and it had been a real rough time. And I would probably just tell her because I, I wouldn't would be able to tell a therapist or something. I wouldn't tell. I would put it on her. Fair. Well, maybe then we could be good friends, and like living, maybe we could fight back the horror you would so you would tell her the horror the horror and she would say well what is that in reference to and you would explain to her the whole that it's not a phrase you hear in everyday life but it is something that people say when like a fire happens when like with things catch on fire yep or when people invade your house yes and then in 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 that discussion you would grow close yes and develop a friendship and then you start a movement and then you change the world yes the horror the horror movement Mm -hmm. yeah no mine i would just i would lie (laughs) (laughs) because i don't like being uncomfortable sure 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 um so what is the thing with the with the whole with how the book is racist but also i don't think conrad thought it was um did you, you asking me or are you gonna no tell me? no 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 i'm kind of okay. like starting another part of the wrap-up conversation Great. okay cool, cool cool um i think i found i didn't do a deep dive i don't know if you looked at anything else andrew there's a 1975 essay by chinua chebe um called an image of africa racism in conrad's heart of darkness and that's where you get this first like big post-colonialism critique that's like all of the protagonists depictions of people in Africa are really reductive and degrading and because he is the protagonist it kind of celebrates the dehumanization of the native people um, and is really like ignorant deliberately ignorant of other stuff that was happening in Africa at that time um, and then there are counter arguments that are like, well, you have to separate Marlowe from Conrad. That's why I like was very dutiful in pointing out the like narrative structure of the story. Um, for me personally reading it, the ambiguity of the setting and the fact that he is very nonspecific about who these white people are and who these 
um, more so who the different African people are. Like, he's very nonspecific about where they come from or what tribes they're from or anything like that. It does invite this, like, reading of it as a blanket, quote-unquote, savage identity that I think is really problematic. Okay. Um, but I can see the strains of it that are anti-imperialist, that are like, hey we thought we could come here for our reasons and like some of our reasons are greedy and we're just trying to steal ivory. And some of our reasons are we're going to quote unquote, improve the people that are here. And Marlowe is implicated in that just as much as Kurtz is. And all of the stuff that all of humanity is doing is bad anyway. And how dare we white people from Europe say that we're any different or better than other folks. I think that's in there. Mm-hmm. It's just as a reader in 2019, it can be hard not to see the like rough depiction stuff as like I don't even want to mess with this. Like I don't like Marlowe, and that's I mean that's a reasonable thing to do with the story, I suppose. I don't know. Okay, is that a, is that a thing you remember being talked about when you? read the book i honestly cannot remember like it has just been it's been so long and this was i think we've talked about this a little before on the show but i don't know if it was if it was just me being a teen or like early 20 something or if it's the way that the canon is is distributed and then dissected in a in an academic setting but sure something about the way that books were talked about or just that the way that assignments work just totally made me disengage from the actual the entire yeah. process. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. That's probably what was happening to me in high school. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't want to, I don't want to, I had some very good English teachers and I think that actually the teacher whose class I read this in was, was very good and I liked her a lot, but also I don't, <laughs> I don't know. You you kind of read the thing and then you have a little bit of discussion and you make sure that you talk about the things that you're supposed to talk about. Right. And then you go home and you read the next one and you do the thing over again. And it's not that that thing where it's geared toward understanding its relevance in the canon and in, in and in like literature mm-hmm. makes it not stick with me in a, in a oh, way that yeah. like doing a dumb, stupid book podcast like we do where we just talk about it and sometimes guess a little bit. Yep. But mostly we're just kind of casually discussing it as you would among friends. But that way can sometimes stumble into a deeper meaning or connection. Sometimes, which is what we do every week. Yeah. Um, Everybody who's ever left our show a bad review on iTunes just doesn't get it. (laughs) Just doesn't get it. Um, And I think also the thing that makes the book stand out for this question of like, what is it? How successful is it in indicting mankind or imperialist white mankind um i think probably at the time of publication that's still it it is more fresh or at least novel and perhaps against some of the conventional wisdom of like you're at that age where it it is a dissenting voice in an age of like the height of british colonialism right um i just bit like at the end of this book, I was like, oh, what if the monster is man? Which feels the like such... monster's always man. But, like, but this is <laughs> from an era where that was maybe not like the trope it is now, right? Like, 
the idea of having this evil presence being thing and then having it be like the human nature is not as like well worn in zombie fiction okay sure like the the most dangerous game came out in 1924 (laughs) and i think that's the real watermark for realizing that the monster is man okay okay so he's on the beginning of the wave here conrad is is what we're saying a trendsetter he's a trendsetter um well any trendsetters out there who want to let us know what we got wrong about this book can uh, email us at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also hit us up online at facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. And by online, I mean through social media specifically. Uh, thanks to folks reaching out this week, including a lot of folks sharing what they're reading, uh, including Aaron, Amber, Bob, Michelle, Patty, uh, Andra, Julie, Aaron, Lucy, Raul, Kara, Eric, Jake, and lots more. If you need some good uh, things to read, maybe go check out those posts we did last Friday. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They can go to overduepodcast.com. We have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed. We are also up on Spotify and Stitcher. Listen to our podcast. Enjoy it. Enjoy these moments. <laughs> these precious moments before, before you, you journey into the heart of darkness. The horror, the horror. <laughs> um, that's like the funny kind of usage that we talked about a little bit earlier. Yes, It's like what true. parenthood is the horror. Oh, God. Um, <clears throat> next week, it is very likely... Yeah, do we just want to commit to like picking one of the paternity episodes and if we we can record something else, we just throw it on at the end or somewhere? Yeah, next week, uh, let's just say that it will be the uh, first uh, of our paternity books, which is the second His Dark Materials book, The Subtle Knife, correct? Yeah, it's a real subtle knife. Andrew read The Subtle Knife. So that will be next week. Um, before then, this coming Friday, you can check out, if you are not a Patreon subscriber at the $10 level, you can you can check out Hellboys, a divine comedy podcast. We we're are, the Hellboys. We're the Hellboys. And That's a little, I, just a little taste. If you want to Spoil read along, bit. we are reading the Hollander translation, and I think by the first two episodes, we get through Inferno 16. So go check that out and listen to it on Friday. And then enjoy the second Golden Compass book. Yeah, I hope you enjoy week. Hellboys. It's been a different, it's been a different feel from Homer Time because we just have less grounding in it. I think, but there's still a lot of fun to be had in examining some of Dante's imagery and also some of Dante's own just really robust sense of his own importance. He's a real petty monster, though. <laughs> That's it, Andrew. That's the show. That's the show forever. Okay, everybody. Thank you for listening. And until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.